Our scripture readings this morning, the Old Testament reading is a responsive reading, which you will find printed in your bulletin. This comes from Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 through 16, and then chapter, and same chapter, verses 22 through 24. And the New Testament reading comes from the gospel according to John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, and 22 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on the rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will see the lost, and I will bring back the stray, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall lead them. He shall lead them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. And then the gospel according to John, chapter 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we come to John chapter 10. Wow, what a chapter. Whoa. There's so much to see there in such depth, much more depth than people think when they talk about Jesus being our shepherd. So let's pray and ask him to teach us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you as our priest this morning. You've answered our prayer, prayer upon prayer, Sunday after Sunday, week after week. We've seen people healed. We've seen people restored and marriages restored. Father, thank you. Teach us that we are not only prophets taking your word out in the world around us, through the week, being salt and light, but that when we assemble here on the Lord's Day, that we're priests, we're a congregation of priests for the world around us, for our brothers and sisters. We pray, Father, for the Ballinger family as they grieve Peter's death. We thank you for the joy that we have 
because he's hung in glory. And we thank you for their joy that they've expressed in this. We pray for the Hogan family, for Jane Hogan especially, as she grieves the death of Bill. Our father, wipe away the tears and pray that she'll know that omnipotent comfort that only you can bring. We pray, Father, for John Albritton, that you'll continue to bring healing to him. For John Rowan, prepare him for this surgery, Father. And we pray that surgery will accomplish what it's designed to do. We pray for Joan Schaefer, that you would give her health and give the doctors insight and wisdom about what to do. We pray for how you have blessed David Mattingly, Father, in restoring his health. We pray that, Father, you would continue to do that. Continue to heal him, Father, until there is no ailment, no weakness. We thank you for the strength that we can see in him today. We pray for Eileen Wood as she goes to Cleveland Clinic next week. Father, you would give the doctors insight and wisdom and interest to do what needs to be done. Bless Donna McNannis. Father, give her strength that she would be able to have this surgery. We pray for Phil and Sally Halley. Father, thank you for what you've done with Phil. We pray for Elaine Edwards. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, for your mercy. And now as we open your word, we pray that you would teach us. Father, we pray that we would hear your voice in our hearts in these next few minutes. John Sartell cannot teach so that we grow as Christians so that we're changed on the inside. No man who stands behind this desk is able to do that. And so, Father, right now, we look to you. You're our Father. We're your children. Oh, Father, teach us. We pray in a few minutes when we leave that each one of us will know that you have spoken. For the glory of Christ, your Son, we pray. Amen. I love this title. I think it accurately describes what is set forth for us in John chapter 10. The fierce care and protection of the omnipotent warrior shepherd from glory. That's the theme of this chapter. John 10 is a familiar passage. It's about Jesus, the good shepherd of Israel. Why did Jesus choose to speak about being the good shepherd at this point in the gospel as John is telling the story? We could turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, why at this point Right after the events of chapter 9, why did you talk about being the good shepherd? We could say to John, why did you include it at this point in your gospel? What is the context of this celebrated discourse on the good shepherd? The answer, 
I'm telling you, is obvious. And I'm a little bit disappointed if you hadn't already gotten it. The events of chapter 9 naturally lead us into Jesus speaking about being the good shepherd. Jesus had healed. You know the story. We've talked about it. He had healed the blind beggar of his lifelong blindness. The whole chapter's about that. And the Pharisees were in a wad because he had done this on the Sabbath. Once again, they had been offended. They were hard-hearted. They looked at this wonderfully merciful act by Jesus and actually were offended by it and said, this should not have happened. They were cruel to this blind man because this man consistently, we saw this in the last two weeks, consistently gave Jesus credit and said it was Jesus who healed him of his blindness. So they threw him because he wouldn't stop. They threw him, this blind man now, they threw him out of the synagogue. They excommunicated him. We looked at this last week. Jesus hears about what had happened and he seeks out the poor man. In response to Jesus coming to him, this man who had been blind confesses that he believes Jesus is Lord. That he's the Christ. And we read that he worships him. He adores him. It is right at that point that Jesus begins to talk about the Pharisees as being hard-hearted shepherds, as being cruel shepherds to God's sheep in Israel. They were supposed to be caring spiritual shepherds. And he called them thieves and robbers who only cared about their own interest. It is at that point that Jesus, in contrast to the Pharisees, calls himself the good shepherd. And he speaks of his care for the flock. Jesus' care for the blind man, thrown out by the Pharisees, led naturally to Jesus speaking about being the good shepherd who goes and seeks his sheep. So the immediate context of this discourse on shepherding was the story of Jesus' care for the blind beggar in contrast to how he was treated by the Pharisees. Chapter 9 leads us to chapter 10. Jesus seeking out, remember, it doesn't say that the man went and found it. Jesus sought him out when he had heard what had happened. He was like a shepherd looking for his sheep who had been thrown aside. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God spoke about the call of priests and prophets and teachers to be good shepherds. And very often they weren't. They did not bring God's word in all of its truth and all of its wonder. They didn't bring when it was needed, when repentance was needed. They told the people what they wanted to hear. Read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. All through those three prophets, he talks about the false shepherds. He talks about the treacherous shepherds 
leaders and false teachers for not being truthful to God's sheep in Israel. Well, he's doing the same thing here. What he said in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. It's exactly what Jesus is doing in John chapter 10. We will see this morning that this passage has three major subjects. First, Jesus was once more making another claim to deity in this chapter. Another claim to being the Messiah of Israel. That's the first subject. The second subject is the transcendent love of the good shepherd for his sheep. The third subject is the transcendent power of the good shepherd. So first, I want you to see in this passage, Jesus again claims deity and he claims to be the Messiah of Israel when he claimed to be the good shepherd. We have already heard Jesus say in John's gospel, I am the living water. We've heard him say, I am the bread of life. We've heard him say, I'm the light of the world. He will go on in John to say, I'm the resurrection and the life. He will go on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But in our passage this morning, Jesus says, I am the door to God's sheepfold. He says, I am the good shepherd. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out and find pasture. Now, question. If you hadn't asked it, you should ask it. How is Jesus saying that he is a good shepherd or the good shepherd, a claim to be the Messiah of Israel? It's a great question. That's why we read in a responsive reading from Ezekiel 34. I remember when I first read, I was young in the ministry and I first read Ezekiel 34. I immediately knew that this is where Jesus, Ezekiel 34 is exactly where Jesus got his concept and the story of the good shepherd. John chapter 10. Think of it this way. John chapter 10 is inextricably entwined with Ezekiel 34. I'll put it this way. Jesus himself was thinking of Ezekiel 34 when he made the claim to being the good shepherd. And you say, John, how can you know what Jesus was thinking? Well, you will reach the same conclusion for yourself. As we look at Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, what's happening? Israel is in exile in Babylon. God had judged Israel for sins. In God's providence and judgment, 
Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem and carried a large segment of the population of Israel back to Babylon and Persia. The reason God did this, it was God's judgment. And the reason it happened was because the prophets and the priests had been false. They didn't speak to the people and warn them of their idolatry and warn them of their sin. They told the people what they wanted to hear. And Israel was straying away from God. So God, through Ezekiel, speaks to Israel in Babylon. In Ezekiel 34, God condemns the spiritual leaders of Israel as they had not been good shepherds to his flock. Look at Ezekiel 34, 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? These false shepherds had only looked out for themselves. They were really neglecting and abusing the sheep. So what does God say? He makes a prophecy when speaking to these bad shepherds. We read it this morning in our responsive reading. Look at Exodus 34, 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. Now skip down to verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So what does he say there? God said, you've been bad shepherds. I'm going to personally, God Almighty is going to personally become their shepherd. In the last two verses of our responsive reading, he said that he will set up one shepherd over them. And he calls him my servant, David. Now, what's wrong with that statement? David had been dead. He had been in glory for several centuries. But he says, I'm going to set my servant David up. Well, who is that? He's referring to the coming Messiah. He's he's speaking of the great descendant of David. The Messiah. Read those last two verses again. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Notice in John 10. Go to John 10 now. When Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, he's not say, I am a good shepherd. Now that's what you would expect. He had talked about how the Pharisees were bad shepherds. He could have just said, I am a good shepherd. But that's not what he said. He said, I am the, the good shepherd. He was saying, I, I am the good shepherd of Ezekiel 34. 
If you'd ask any of the Pharisees who were standing there that day, I thought this was a real irony. If you'd opened the, the, the scroll to Ezekiel 34 and asked those Pharisees and asked the scholars of the Old Testament scholars of his day, hey, what, what is he talking about, about David becoming the shepherd of Israel, that God's going to make David the shepherd of Israel? They would have said, oh, that's easy. That's the Messiah. Jesus, when he said, I am the good shepherd, was making a claim, a messianic claim, that he had made over and over and over again that we have seen week after week after week in the Gospel of John. He said, I am the Messiah. Well, now, Jesus also says there in John 10, I am the door. Look at verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He is speaking there of the door to the sheepfold, as he mentioned in verse 1. Now, Israel was an agrarian culture. Herds of cattle and flocks of sheep were everywhere. Most towns would have a general sheepfold. That sheepfold would be a fold for all the sheep and shepherds of that community. Each shepherd would bring his sheep into the fold. Usually there was one shepherd in charge of the common fold. To get in and out of the sheepfold, you had to pass through the door to the sheepfold. I read a story this week. came from George Adam Smith. He was a well-known minister in the Free Church of Scotland in the late 19th century and early 20th century. He was a minister. He was a theologian, a well-known preacher, a scholar. He was especially a scholar in the study of Mideast, the culture of the Mideast. He tells a story of traveling in Israel and around Israel. And he saw on this occasion a stone structure. And he said, what's that doing out here? And he said, it looked like a sheepfold. And so he, there was a shepherd there with some sheep. And he said, does that happen to be a sheepfold? And the shepherd said, it is indeed. And he looked around. He was curious about it. And he goes back to the shepherd and he said, I don't see a door. Now, he said that he and the shepherd had not talked about the Bible. They hadn't talked about Christianity. They hadn't talked about Christ. He just said, where's the door to the sheepfold? And the shepherd answered, I am the door. Every sheep that goes into that fold was passed by me. Then I sit down or I lay down in that passage and no sheep can get out and no predator can get in. I'm the door. Folks, that's exactly what Jesus was saying. And what kind of claim is that? Jesus was saying, I'm not the door to a physical sheepfold on this earth. He was saying, I am the door to God's sheepfold. Are you, this morning, 
Are you one of God's sheep? Are you with David saying, the Lord's my shepherd? Are you one of his sheep? How did you get into his sheepfold? How did you get into the sheepfold? It was through Jesus that you did it. You see the claim? I mean, he was standing there saying, I am the good shepherd. And not only that, I'm the door. You can't get in God's flock. You can't be one of God's sheep unless you come through me. I am the good shepherd, and I'm the door of the sheepfold. We see again Jesus' claim to be the Messiah of Israel. Secondly, we see in this passage the transcendent love of the good shepherd. Now, transcendent love. We're seeing the greatest love that can be. That's what I mean by transcendent. The love that is beyond any love. And there's two ways that you can see it in this passage. And they're beautiful. First, he knows his sheep. And he calls them by name. Look at verse 3. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name. Calls his own sheep by name. And leads them out. Verse 14. He says, I'm the good shepherd. And I know my own. And my own know me. Now, you want to look at that and say, well, of course he knows it. He's omniscient. He's God. Well, Jesus here is not referring to his omniscience. Now, he is omniscient. But that's not what he's saying here. No. This is the shepherd affectionately calling his sheep by name. There's a personal relationship here. The Greek word there, I know my own. I know my own. The Greek word used there is the word gnosko. It means to know someone personally. A different Greek word is used to know about someone or know someone from a distance. But when you're talking about a personal relationship, you use the word gnosko. In Matthew 7, 23... It's there on your scripture sheet. We read that Jesus will tell the pretenders, depart from me. Depart from me. And then he adds this strange phrase. For I never knew you. He uses the Greek word, gnosko. I didn't know you. Well, did Jesus know their name? Does God Almighty not know somebody's name? Because he's omniscient? Yes, Jesus would know the person's name as he said, depart from me. But he would say, we never had a personal relationship. So that same Greek word was used in Genesis in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation or the translation of Greek, our trans, Old Testament translation, Hebrew into Greek. And in the Septuagint, it says in the fourth chapter of Genesis, it says, Adam knew his wife and she conceived. And the Greek word used there is gnosko. It's this close relationship. And Jesus goes on. 
He knows the sheep by name. Do you, do you know someone whom you're just honored that you're counted as one of their friends? You're just honored. They're, they're well known, maybe in their vocation, maybe in the political world, maybe in the athletic world, they're well known. And every time you're around them, they call you and, and you say, I think it's a wonder that I know that person. I think it's a wonder that that person really knows me and counts me as a friend. When I was writing these words this week, I made a list. You've heard me speak about this. I made a list of the people, regular people, but I felt that way about them. Regular people that profoundly have affected my life. And I felt like that they were so far beyond me that I was just astounded that I had a relationship with that person. Sometimes I'll say to Terry, as I'm talking about one of these people, I'll say, you know, only God could have done that. That person should, I should never be involved in that person's world because they were so huge and so great. Well, think about this. Jesus knows your name. You're talking about somebody. You know, if you knew and had a personal relationship with Tom Brady. You would tell the world, I know Tom Brady. Tom Brady knows, he knows my name. Here, you want me to call him? I'll put him on the phone. I know Tom Brady. Tom Brady knows me. Folks, that list that I had, it pales in comparison to Jesus. Tom Brady pales compared to Jesus. The King of glory is saying, I know your name. He's seated at the right hand right now, the right hand of the Father in glory, interceding for us. And He intercedes for us by name. So His transcendent love is seen in the passage as He calls His sheep by name. Secondly, the second way that we see the transcendent love of the shepherd in this passage, is that he lays down his life for the sheep. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We've just come through the Thanksgiving season. We have recounted our blessings. We have named one by one. Perhaps this week, you thought about your house and how gracious God has been to give you that house or to give you your wife or your husband or your children or your parents. Well, what's the greatest gift? What's the greatest gift? What's greater than God giving your house or God giving you your wife or God giving you your children? Don't ever look at your children and say, 
you know, you're the greatest gift God's ever given me. Because you're going to hear back from heaven. No, no, that's not true. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What did you do to deserve Christ dying for you? What did you do to earn that? You've got to say nothing, nothing. Well, maybe you could say one thing. I sinned. I know that. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, people, no one ever loved you more than Jesus. Not ever. So we see again in this passage, Jesus claimed a deity and claims to be the Messiah of Israel. We see the transcendent love of the good shepherd for his sheep. He calls us by name and he died for us. And finally, thirdly, we see the transcendent power of the good shepherd. And this is what I wanted to get to. This is so good. So I know I'm usually closing the service by now. But we've got just two, three, four more minutes. And we've got to got to look at this. What do you envision? We see the transcendent power of the good shepherd. What do you envision when you read about shepherds in the Bible? You may envision a pastoral scene. Maybe you envision a peaceful life lived out in the beauty of the fields. Maybe you look at it and say, you know, I really don't want to be a shepherd. That, I hold that office in low esteem. It's an insignificant position. Well, let's review biblical history. Abel, the godly and physical, physically powerful son of Adam. Go back to Abel, a godly man, a powerful man. He was a shepherd. Abraham was a wealthy shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd for 40 years. Where was Moses when God called him to go to, back to Egypt and lead his people out? He was a shepherd. David, the greatest warrior king of old Israel, was a shepherd. Shepherding was a vocation that called for courage and physical strength, a fighting spirit. Remember what David told Saul when Saul said, Here's this boy, David. Saul said, you can't go fight Goliath. He'll destroy you. Look at 1 Samuel 17, 34. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down lions and bears. That's what the shepherds of old Israel did. We see the transcendent power of the good shepherd in two ways in the passage before us. First, 
We see the transcendent power of the good shepherd in giving his life for his sheep. And you say, well, just now you said it was a sign of his love. Yes, but it's also a sign of his power. Look at John 10, verse 18. Mark it down. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down by my own accord. We see the transcendent power of the good shepherd in his giving his life for the sheep. We've seen... In our study of John, the two-year effort by the powerful Sanhedrin to get rid of Jesus. So here's this powerful body that day after day, week after week, they have been trying to destroy Jesus. Here is, we see Pilate with all the authority and power of Rome. There are those who say, this would be Messiah named Jesus. God caught up in the powerful political and social and religious machinations of Rome and Israel and Jerusalem. And the gears of that powerful machine simply crushed him. There was nothing Jesus could do about it. No! He has said, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life. And let me be very explicit, Jesus says, no one, no one can take it from me. This reason the Father loves me, verse 17, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down by my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from the Father. What did Jesus say to his disciples when they tried to protect him from the people coming to arrest him? He said, are you nuts? Do you not know who I am? I can say, Father, and he'll send 12 legions of angels and we'll wipe out the Roman Empire. He didn't need the angels. He could have just spoken a word. That's your shepherd. The Lord from glory. Fierce. We see the transcendent power of the good shepherd in his giving his life for the sheep. It was a sign of his position. It was a sign of his power. No one took his life not Pilate not the Romans not the Sanhedrin oh they'll be held responsible but without his consent without him laying down his life they wouldn't have stood a chance to nail him to a cross two we see the transcendent power of the good shepherd in his protection and preserving his sheep. Look at John 10, 28. I give them eternal life. This is you to you to, he's speaking about you. You're the subject. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. A shepherd in that day protected his sheep from the wolves and dogs and lions, the bears. Jesus said, I protect my sheep. You're in my hands. I spent my early childhood in the country, in Drapers Valley, Virginia. There was an open field behind our house at was a hill that ran up through the field to a wooded area along a ridge. When I was three and a half, four, five, I would walk in those fields. Sometimes I would walk with my father. The grasses were high, the ground was uneven. 
Now, of course, I was like you. I didn't want anyone holding on to me, and I didn't want to hold. I wanted to be independent. My dad would say, let me have your hand. And I would say, gone. And I would fall flat on my face. He put down his hand. Well, I would grab a finger and hold on to it. I couldn't hold on to his whole hand, but I'd grab his finger. Once more, I would trip. My grip would slip, and I would be flat on my face. I would get up a bit more humbled, and Dad would put out his hand and have it wide open, and I would reluctantly lay my hand in it. And then when I tripped, my little feet would just swing in the air. His grip didn't slip. People, our security is not in our grip on Jesus. I will tell you, hold tenaciously to Jesus. But folks, that won't keep you from falling. Our security is not in our grip on Jesus. Our security is Jesus' grip on us. Nothing, nothing can snatch us from the hand of Jesus. When I was writing these words, I thought about Revelation 13. A year ago, we were looking at Revelation 13, and we were looking at the Antichrist, the ultimate Antichrist of Revelation 13. Go home and read it. Go home and read it in contrast to this chapter. Now, we've known Antichrists. They've been in every century, the spirit of the Antichrist has, but there's one ultimate, and every Antichrist is going to be pale compared to him. He's going to bring such persecution, such torture, such murder. The church is going to be all but destroyed. We've seen martyrs. We, you know, three awful, we, we ought to learn from this. We ourselves saw it in the 20th century. Hitler, Marx, Lenin and Stalin, Mao Zedong. It wasn't hundreds of thousands. It was millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people were killed. That's going to look like a picnic compared to the Antichrist, the ultimate Antichrist. Well, what then? In light of John 10, what do we say? Jesus is still standing there and saying, yes, Satan can do his worst, do his absolute worst. He may take your, he may kill you physically. But the moment you die physically, you're home in glory in my hand. God's hand, nothing, not the Antichrist, nothing can take you from the hand of Jesus Christ. Nothing. That's the great consternation. In Revelation 14, 
it begins with the saints home in glory singing at the very time this is taking place on earth and Jesus is to the great consternation of Satan saying Satan you're doing your worst and look the person you killed is home in glory I've got them people I'm prone to wonder Sometimes we sing this, prone to leave the God I love. But my greatest comfort is that I belong to Jesus Christ, body and soul. And his grip is on me. And it's omnipotent. And it's eternal. There's not a more powerful hand in all eternity than the hand of Jesus Christ.